there were so many different factors from the people perspective that no matter what plan I had, if you didn't have those balanced properly, all your plans will fail. And so solving for the people part first is probably the most important thing to know. Like always think about the the the, the, the human perspective as opposed to like the, the toolkit because anyone can pick up any kind of toolkit but if you can't, if you don't understand how to communicate with the person and and use that toolkit properly then you're gonna fail at whatever you do hi everyone I'm Fabio the host of the shaping chaos podcast and today I have Phil Balgasas with me Phil is the founder and president of the design future initiatives a company that runs workshops, events, and programs that help people and businesses use speculative design to create new products and offerings. You can find more about the Design Futures initiatives at futures.design. That's futures.design. Phil's company also runs the Primer Conference, an event that brings together the leading minds in the futures design thinking and doing around the world. Phil is also a former experience design director at McKinsey. And before that, he worked at General Electric in the business unit. Uh, Phil, you have such a span of experience that I feel that I'm missing something. Is there anything else you want to add to this intro? I mean, I, I feel like that's the most notable companies I've, well, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing justice to a lot of the other companies, but I've been, I've been in and around the um, nonprofit government space back when I was in Washington, D.C. when I first graduated from my undergrad. But I've also been in Silicon Valley since about 2007. So I've, I've worked a lot, a, lot, a lot of startups in the San Francisco Bay Area area. Um, but yeah, <laughs> been so around the 20, block. Yeah, 20 years of, of doing products and doing businesses and services, like helping these giant companies. And I actually, and I actually uh, was introduced to your work by a mutual friend of ours, which is uh, Alishan Atvor, that has been in the show a few episodes ago. And um, he spoke so highly about your work that that just made me so interested to know more about you, know more about uh, your work. And I can I confess that um, before I actually researched more about you and about your work, I didn't know much about what speculative design was. Even though I'm a digital product designer, speculative design wasn't something that hasn't come to my attention yet. But I found out that it's such a big, big um, kind of uh, area of the design discipline that I became very, very curious to ask you this one question that I ask everyone that comes to the show. And that question is, um, while you're helping leaders uh, innovate, or even organizations, have you ever been in a very particular uncertain or chaotic scenario? And if you did, how did you navigate that chaos? How did you navigate that uncertainty? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I guess let me just start by saying, you know, a lot of the work that we've been doing at the Design Futures Initiative is um, really trying to teach not just designers, but anyone who's interested strategic approaches for thinking about the future. Mm -hmm. There's a, a, a toolkit that we take from speculative design and another field called strategic foresight and also just design thinking that allow us to shape a perspective of what the future could look like. Mm -hmm. And I feel like even before I, I formalized that practice in the nonprofit and built a community and all that, I was sort of already future 
minded at the time. <laughs> and I, 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 and my, my dad will probably be proud that I actually mentioned him here. <laughs> you know, ever since <laughs> I was little, um, some of the, the ways my, my father used to try to teach me to be strategic and just like plan well was to always have a backup plan and multiple backup plans. And that's kind of how you treat business, right? You have a, mm -hmm. a way forward, but you try to think about contingencies and threats and opportunities and how to, and you try to prepare for them as best you can. Some businesses do it better than others. And some, some, some businesses have a much more further looking lens on a situation and are better prepared than others. Um, but as far as the, the chaos event, I'll go back to my time at General Electric when I was working mm -hmm. for the aviation business unit. So just a, just a quick history on that. I joined uh, General Electric, I don't know, I think it was like maybe 2013 or so, when mm -hmm. they had just created a new business unit called GE Digital. And this, yeah. this was a sort of internal um, consultancy of sorts that had both designers and engineers serving the multiple business units of GE. GE has uh, a power and water business unit where they build the turbines for power plants, oil and gas, where they build the drills, and aviation where they build the jet engines. General Electric was going through a, a massive digital transformation mm -hmm. at the time uh, and, and really investing in internal um, resources to build digital dashboards for all of their big, large turbines. Mm -hmm. And we were we were tasked with building these um, products to capture the data off of the jet engines and the airplanes, and you know, the, and monitor the flight performance of aircraft, and try to find using data and analytics um, a way for them to fly more efficiently, mm -hmm. fly faster to des destinations, safer to the destinations, um, you know, um, uh, manufacture parts quicker and also maintain them and repair them faster. So yeah. I started off in, in GE Digital, the central business unit, and I was quickly hired by the GE Aviation business unit to come and help build their design thinking competency there. Okay. Within GE, part of their culture and how they problem solve is they like to have what's called a workout. A workout mm -hmm. is workout. a large meeting, traditionally before some of the designers got there, a large meeting with a bunch of people where you show a bunch of PowerPoint slides and you figure out what the problem is and you talk. And it's just a big giant meeting and you're working it out. That's where <laughs> it came from. You're like, you're work, working out the problem. Well, we came in and we have, you know, this toolkit of a workshop, a design thinking workshop. And that was sort of our major tool um, within this institution. If <laughs> new problem to be solved, let's have a workout, which is really a, a design thinking workshop. And we really transformed the way they looked at workouts. We used post-its and clay and Legos and all kinds of materials, tactile materials to actually problem solve visually, tactically, and using a lot of our, our, our methodologies. Yeah. Well, um, I was sort of, I had done workshops before, but I was really kind of um, getting used to it and starting to kind of uh, create my own methodology for how to run a workshop. Mm -hmm thinking about facilitation, like how do you actually as a leader in that, in that meeting facilitate a very effective workshop with people? Mm -hmm. And so at the time, the aviation business unit had a, whole, they had a whole portfolio of digital products that they had outsourced pretty much. And we had to have a giant workout to decide how, how are we going to redesign the portfolio? You know, what, what, what do we want to keep? What do we want to shave off? 
How do we want to enhance certain products? And they want to have, have one giant workout to talk about this stuff. And I was tasked mm. with facilitating, with designing the, the workshop agenda. It was three days and facilitating this. And here's okay. where the chaos comes in. <laughs> so probably to date, it was, it was my, at that time to date, it was the largest workshop that I would have ever facilitated. Mm-hmm. Thirty people, number of people, the, or okay. Yes, number of people, and plus the complexity of having to um, analyze entire portfolio of products, which I had no idea what any of the products really did, and they all had <laughs> really generic names, which still didn't make any sense to me. But I had to make sense of it. Uh, I did as much studying as I could, so I designed this agenda, and. I, I, I put a lot of thought into what each day was going to look like. I segmented every single time, every single, right down to the minute of when are we going to have breaks? What's the exercise we're going to do? Who's facilitating it? Um, creating, you know, boards. And mm-hmm. uh, I knew the room we were going to be in, the breakout rooms, what we're going to do in the breakout rooms. And I had to kind of like have this balance between feeling very professional so they they these people understood what I was trying to do, but also have a little bit of fun to kind of get people a little bit looser about thinking about the portfolio and thinking about like, how do we actually like um, shape it in, in, in a more effect within a more effective strategy. A lot of these people had never seen or heard or, or um, participated in, de- in a design thinking exercise. So um, there was a lot of kind of reshaping of vocabulary. When we went to breakout rooms, I was like, okay, now you're putting this hat on. And I put a picture of the <laughs> hat on the, on, the, on the breakout room door, which is really cheesy. But like, um, just to remind people, when you go into this room, this is the hat that you have to wear. And this is the only hat that you can wear while you're in here talking about this, this problem space. Well, so I show up and uh, it, was, uh, it was up in Seattle. It was a nice day. And it's 30 men that that are in the room. Now, aviation is a, is a very male-centric uh, industry anyway. Okay. Unfortunately. Um, but these were a lot of leaders. Some of them were, were ex-CEOs or vice presidents. I mean, they're they from all over the place. And, and uh, you know, a fraction of them were my colleagues, people who I'd been working with in aviation for some time. Well, when we, when we got in there... Um, Maybe day one was okay. Day one of any workshop is always okay. The first third of the segment, first third mm-hmm. segment segment is all about getting all your data out. You're talking about the problem, you know, airing your di- dirty laundry. And that's easy because people love to complain. But yeah. by day two or the second segment, when you're trying to do something with that information, that's when chaos usually arrives. Because mm-hmm. if you're introducing something completely new, such as design thinking, and they don't know, or you bring out the Legos or the clay, and, and you're like, here, go play with this stuff, and this is going to de- define what the, the next decade of your business is going to look like. You know, billions of dollars are, are pending on this. It can, <laughs> it can be very difficult. So by day two, I had an idea of what the exercise was going to be, but it completely just fell apart. I mean, it, okay. it, it was... it it. I didn't realize how fragile my my approach was going to be or could be in this situation. So 30 men, and again, this is not a sexist thing at all, but 30, 30 <laughs> men in, in aviation, some of them ex, ex-military, um, not a very diverse crowd. I think there was maybe, you know, two people of color there and that one of them was including me. Um, and yeah, they're, so they're mostly white men, half of them in the mil, ex-military. Mm-hmm. So there's a very a lot of bravado in the room. 
and I had to, and here's this guy, you know, I'm, I'm new. I'm like the only Asian in the room. Again, not a race thing at all, but, but, um, I had this completely brand new approach. Half of them hadn't heard, hadn't heard of, heard of me or seen me, but they, they maybe have been told to trust me in this situation. I'm facilitating Mm -hmm. this, trying to wrangle in conversations. There's many conversations going on at once. I lost control of the entire workshop. Um, I kept on saying, look, all you have to do is this. I thought that I was explaining it well. People didn't understand. They're like, no, no, no. This is not what, we're, what we need to do right now. This is what we need to do. It literally, the, the, the one approach that I had to keep people organized exploded. And, and like five different groups in the room had their own idea of what we were supposed to be doing. And they all had very large voices. You know, they were all <laughs> very strong voices. And so I had a couple of backup plans in my in my pocket, but none of them seemed to be the right alternative at this point because I had a lot of personalities to deal with. Um, they've, they'd lost any interest in, in the approach that I had already given them. How, how was I going to actually get them to do something completely different? They, they've, I felt like mm-hmm. I'd already lost the trust in the room. Um, but I still sort of had an idea of where our, our goal was going to be at day three. And I said, okay, fine. I'm going to let all this just kind of ensue. And at one point, I, um, and there's no, there's no um, skill here or like technique or strategy. I left the room. And I tell this, wow. I tell this same story. To, I, I teach to, today, I teach um, a, a program on how to facilitate workshops from a facilitation perspective. You know, how do you actually like, you know, be a leader in the room, think about the energy in the room, plan the right exercises, all that stuff. And I always tell this story to, to my students in that class because I think it's really important not only to, to really understand the people that are going to be there um, and generational, racial graps, whatever it might be, and, and shaping the language and, and knowing how to kind of course correct and deal with conflict very quickly. Mm-hmm. But I, in this situation, I lost any idea of what to do. And I, I left the room and I went outside. And at yeah. the time I was, still, I was still smoking cigarettes. So I went outside and I smoked a cigarette I just, and I was clueless. I was like, I've, I've lost, I'm gonna get fired. I, I don't know what I'm, what I'm gonna do here. I have zero experience, <laughs> zero memories <laughs> to pull from. And when I walked back in the room, you know, fuming like smoke, and visually upset. I wasn't crying or anything, but I had, you know, lost any sort of like joy <laughs> in my face. Yeah. They they had self-organized and they basically started doing what I told them to do on their own. And it was a very quiet room. Wow. And I was like, what's what's hap- what what's what's happening? And someone was like, Did you go outside? It's like, yeah. Did you smoke a cigarette? Yeah, I smoked a cigarette. And they're like, we're very sorry that that we did that. You know, after you left, everyone felt really bad because they had, you know, just upended your plan and Mm -hmm. we decided to just, you know, get to work. And so what do we do next? Now, there was no, there's no no trick into how (laughs) the success of that. We got to the end and there's still lots of course correcting and lots of trust to rebuild at that point. Mm -hmm. But I basically, and and part of the moral of the story is like during chaos, a chaotic event, if you can't control anything and none of your plans work, just take a break. Just go get a breather. And, and um, it's not that things will magically course correct on its on its own, but yes, it's one option. And you'll be lucky as hell if that happens. But the other the other is um, at least you give yourself that time and space to just reflect and figure out how, well, what am I going to do now? 
And I'm not by any means condoning cigarettes, but that's mm-hmm. what I had to do at that moment to, to figure out what my, um, what my next step was going to be. I love that story, Phil. Thank you very much for sharing that because um, it seems to me that a lot of people in leadership and in management and all of that, they usually feel that, that pressure of, I have to, um, I have to be able to get out something out of this meeting or whatever event that it's going on. And it seems to me that, do you think that um, it was over planning that was um, making you like kind of um, unable to progress? Anxious. Yeah, over, and anxious. Over planning? Over planning. No, no I don't think you said that you had, you had like many plans, like plan A and plan B, you had like some exercises and ideas that you, if something was wrong, at the time, I don't think it was. I don't think it was having enough. I don't think it was the over planning. I think it was more about the experience and the memories of understanding what to do in a in a situation like this. Like if you don't really have okay. anything to call call back on, you're, you're a little bit mm-hmm. lost. You kind of have to just wing it at that point. And also just not knowing how to deal with the multiple types of you know very strong personalities because mm-hmm. there's a lot you've got to weigh in, right? Like there's like your status in that in that um, group as a leader with a knowledge mm-hmm. of something that you have to drive or carry people through. That's one thing you have to continue to maintain that respect. And, and I don't want to say the word control, but they have the trust. And yeah. then you also have to have the trust between the different people, understand the vocabulary that's going to make them want to work and want to listen. And also the, the different levels of respect for the different types of people that are in there. I mean, you should always have a high level of respect for everyone in your in your workshop. But like, there were so many different factors from the people perspective that no matter what plan I had, if you didn't have those balanced properly, all your plans will fail. Mm-hmm. And so uh, solving for the people part first is the, probably the most important thing to mm-hmm. know. Like always think about the people. The, the, the human perspective as opposed to like the, the toolkit because anyone can pick up any kind of toolkit but if you can't, if you don't understand how to communicate with the person and and use that toolkit properly then you're gonna fail at whatever you do well and like you said that now you help uh, people run these workshops and um, even facilitating them um mm-hmm. have you ever encountered anyone that had the same experience that you had and if that's so, uh, did you share your story and how did that make you, them feel? Because I'm curious about that, because I'm curious about how people, um, by having someone of that they can trust, can actually relate and uh, grow from that experience into something as you did. Like you grow from that experience, it seems. Yeah, I mean, I, I share that one a lot. I mean, there's just a lot of things you have to know when you're, when you're running workshops internationally. I, I share another story around like working with um, different cultures. Mm. So uh, especially in, in the aviation or sort of military, I'll just, I'll keep it to aviation, but like <laughs> in, a, in Asian, Asian environments, and I'm not going to call any particular type of country um, mm-hmm. out, but like there's a hierarchy and sometimes um, managers, and direct reports in the same room can be a difficult situation because the direct reports or people underneath the manager might be afraid to talk about problems because it's not okay good to talk about problems and things like that. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So you have to you have to kind of think about that way ahead of time. Of like, who's in the room? Will we have any issues with with their ability to speak and to participate because of the hierarchy mm-hmm. that, that exists there? And how do we deal with that? Mm-hmm. So that's interesting because that, mm-hmm. that's something I'll probably come back because uh, I'd like to talk to you about um, um, speculative design. And um, there's one thing that I think might relate in the future about. Uh, status and speculative design and how how to actually create that. But before yeah. that, I'm curious about um, what is speculative design for s- someone like me that just was just introduced to the concept. <laughs> you know, I get asked. It's it's funny because I get that I get that question a lot. And okay. Every time every time I, I I go to answer it, I always get a little bit nervous because I because I've been in this field for such a long time. <laughs> um, that's probably I don't, why I don't wanna, you get that question. Yeah, and I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to um, not do it justice. But speculative design is just a, a form of design, and it can be in any form. It can be three D visual, storyboard, two D, whatever it might be. But you're speculating on, and I, I'm going to say generally a future. But you can also mm. speculate on di- alternate nows, right? Like what if there wasn't okay. a pandemic right now? How how would we speculate on what the world would be like and what are the products and services we need? And we do that through the, the lens of design. We utilize all of our design thinking, design research, prototyping. And it, it speculative, speculative design is really a form of prototyping. You're prototyping the okay. future or prototyping a scenario that could exist. But hmm. when you think about that definition, that's that's all of design, right? Something. If yeah. I want to design something tomorrow, like I want to create a new a, a new type of pen, I'm basically speculating on what that pen could do in you know tomorrow and, and whatever it be. So it's all it's all really just design. But typically, speculative design had was an academic exercise using universities to think about the future, and it's it mm-hmm. was used not just as a prototype to show you what this thing could be, but to um, create more questions around this this thing's purpose in the world. Um, okay. it, it used to be called critical design because it's a critical perspective on a design product or service in, in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's used as sort of a provocational tool to unearth different dimensions of what that thing could do. So um, I'll just talk about autonomous cars because I think we're going to talk about autonomous cars later. Like the <laughs> autonomous cars of the future, what are the what are the ethical implications? So, if I'm building an autonomous car that you know um, for for daycare or something, you know, a car a yeah. car that's autonomous where you can have children in it and you can take care of them, and you can ro- roll around, you know, zoos or whatever. Great, sounds cool, and I could actually create that car. But the more interesting aspects about it are like, what are all the different things we're not thinking about? Like what are all the the threats and opportunities and the ethics and the policies and what will actually do to the children's behavior and who are the people that are working for it? How does maintenance work? By creating this prototype um, of the future, you can actually ask, allow it to ask you more questions that we might not have asked had we not done this exercise. You could say, oh yeah, Mm -hmm. I'm going to build an autonomous car that, that, you know, daycare, autonomous car, whatever it might be. But once you start to create this vision of it, in whatever format, you could do it 3D, you could do it 2D, you could tell someone about it in just words. That's a speculative um, description. You can start to create all these other lists of, of things that you might want to think about before you start to do that. 
And so speculative, mm-hmm. speculative design can be used as a strategic tool to create a vision of the future to help businesses and designers um, manifest what that future is going to look like and decide, is this the future we want? Do I want this? Should well, it change? Mm-hmm. Do I not want this? What are the things I'm not thinking about? Could it destroy society? Could it actually help society? And um, create that visual experience for people. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a lot of other tools in the strategic foresight camp that allow you to look at trends and get data and, and kind of build that world up so that it's believable and allows well. you to understand what's the world going to look like, what are the technological aspects, economic, political, whatever it might be. And then we can create this speculative design within that world because we know a little bit more about it and show it to you. And then we can have a discussion about it. And if we want it to be mm-hmm. our North Star, our guiding light and principle, then we can actually create a roadmap towards that towards that design. Mm-hmm. You, you said something interesting. You, you've actually mixed two concepts that I really like to talk about, which is you said future and COVID. And um, it seems to me that most people are, or even most organizations are not very good at planning for the future, or at least they don't have the right frameworks to do so. And that's probably why they they go to your um, design futures initiatives and want to get more about um, learn more about that. But usually, mm-hmm. people are not very good at predicting the future. And we've seen that uh, with the COVID uh, pandemic, pandemic, we're still still going on, where people were predicting future number future A, future B, future C. Uh, but it seems like they didn't plan for it, any of those futures. That's what it seems from from here, from the, the perspective I'm, I'm taking on. So how do you give these people tools or which tools do you give them to in order to understand better how to frame the future or a possible future? Because it's speculative, speculative right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, that, that's a very good point. Um, I'll tell you right now, even though I'm, in, I'm within a community of futurists and speculative designers, um, we don't get it right either. And that's mm-hmm. actually what we, we try to say because futurists never predict the future. We are not fortune mm-hmm. tellers by any means, but we can provide possibilities based on the data that we have today and, and yesterday. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I've mentioned strategic foresight quite a bit. The foresight um, discipline community as is, is very mature. It's been around for several decades and you can learn about strategic foresight in business school. And it's, it's a business planning tool, but what it comes with is a lot of different methods for, again, looking at trends, uh, drivers of those trends. Like, and that's, 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 there's a big difference there behind what Mm -hmm. we think is a trend. Uh, Something could be exist and, and it could create a pattern in the world. A lot of people are doing it, but what you don't always understand is like, what drove that to become a trend? Was it a technological thing that existed in the world? Or was it a societal thing, you know, like with, you know, with climate change, climate change is a driver to enable a lot of other thinking, policy work, and even new products and services to help combat climate change. Climate change Mm -hmm. alone is not just a trend. I mean, it is, but people talking about climate change is a trend, but there's a lot of drivers that have brought us to the point where now we can actually manifest solutions towards it. Um, Mm -hmm. So there's, there's that, which builds the data around the world. And, the, and then there's like scenario building, thinking about like, okay, if it goes in this direction, what's the world going to look like? If we continue on with the pandemic and Delta variant uh, continues to expand, that's what the world's going to look like. If we solved it and we come up with the vaccine and we start to vaccinate most of the world, 
that's another scenario. That's what we call the growth or transformation scenario where everything is mm-hmm. happy, happy and continues to evolve and towards a positive direction. And then there are these other scenarios that are sort of sitting between where kind of like where we are now, like, okay, pandemic's not really over yet. Vac- the, the world isn't really vac- vaccinated. We've got this other, you know, asshole Delta variant that's coming in. <laughs> um, no problem. We've got this other uh, Delta variant come in. We don't really know about it. So it's sort of this, it, it's a little bit like a black swan, an anomaly event mm-hmm. that we are not necessarily prepared for, but we're sort of prepared for. So we can start to create these different scenarios of what the world's going to look like, different options, possibilities, right? Mm-hmm. And we can analyze those scenarios as time moves forward. What do we do if this scenario happens or this one doesn't happen? And depending on the mm-hmm. strength uh, of the signal, the strength of that scenario, how the likelihood of it, it will give us the, the the facilities to start to prepare for that. Take advantage of it as an opportunity. You know, create new healthcare products, new services to help, mm-hmm. uh, or as a threat, or anything in between. You know, and so we teach them lots of frameworks, and there, there's one that we we're we were going to talk about called the futures wheel, or what mm-hmm. I like to call the implications wheel, which allows okay. you to take any tor- any sort of trend, event, signal, existence of something in the world and look at the multiple implications for what 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 could happen. If I'm going mm-hmm. to the grocery store, that's the event. The, the there are many implications for me going to the grocery store. I could get I could walk out my door and get hit by a car. Or I yeah. could forget my grocery list or I could forget my wallet or there might be a sale at the store. Lots of implications that could that could exist because I'm going mm-hmm. to the grocery store. And yeah. you can use this mapping diagram to, to look at all the different possibilities, both the, the immediate direct implication and the indirect implication. So if I forgot my wallet at home, I will walk out the door, I will get to the store. And because I forgot my wallet, the indirect implication of me forgetting my wallet means I'm not buying anything at the store because I don't have any money. <laughs> and when you start to look at the knock-on effect of, of uh, events, third-order consequences, fourth-order consequences, you start to show all of these different blind spots that you never would have thought about. Now, you don't necessarily have to design an entire business around one blind spot that's like four four orders down, but at least you know it. And if at least if you're aware of a potential threat, you might have some kind of a backup plan. This is coming full circle to the beginning. You might yeah. have some kind of backup plan for how you might want to deal with that once it arrives. And I think that's wow. that's helpful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The issue with businesses is they don't necessarily want to invest in something that could happen 10 years from now. They want to, they want immediate return on investment. They want to know their money's going to something that's actually building the business, all that stuff. But what businesses don't understand all, always is that we've been thinking strategically for, for a long time. We just do it in PowerPoint slides. The power of design is to show you a, di- a visual framework like this or create some sort of speculative design and give you something to look at and to really immerse yourself in and really kind of think about and so mm-hmm. that you can believe what's going to happen in the future and be prepared for it. Wow. So, so when does actually speculative design becomes objective design? When? Well, when there's enough investment in it, when, when I, I, I hate to continue to use the word data because sometimes it, it's not <laughs> very qu- quantitative, but when you've really done a really robust analysis of what you think it's going to be and all your stakeholders are on board, they believe this is an actual threat or an opportunity that we have to solve. Okay. We are willing to invest money into solving this. We're going to build some resources. We're going to build a platform. We're going to build contingency plans. That's when you, when, once it's become 
a vision. It's not necessarily like a speculative vision, but becomes a goal, North Star. Yeah. The thing that we want, and whether it's five years, 10 years, or two years down the road, as long as it becomes this thing that we want to invest and drive a roadmap towards, now you're now you're in business. It just becomes business as usual. I don't think people realize that like all we're doing is finding a different way of showing you the future. You can you mm-hmm. can still invest in it the same way. It's just a different way of looking at the future with a bunch of additional data, perspectives, implications, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It's interesting because if we're talking about businesses. I'm thinking about this question that is always in my mind which is what is like the biggest barrier in your perspective to innovation in terms of business and companies? To innovation? I, mm-hmm. I would say, and I haven't really thought that deeply about this question, but it's really around the belief system. And I know that sounds mm-hmm. like it's a religion or something, but if you don't <laughs> have a very, a very um, structured and a robust belief system around what that end state's going to look like what the future is going to look like, what the what your goals are or whatever, you're going to get skepticism. So if you haven't walked with your your client, your your stakeholders, your business, whatever, if you haven't walked them through the journey of understanding, here are the trends that we're looking at. These are the ones that are impacting our business. Here's why. Here's how the world could play out. Here's how our business could fail or succeed. And here's why. And here's a potential goal. Here's a vision of where we want to want, want to be. And it looks like this. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's got all these bells and whistles and it's going to, you know, in, increase our, our bottom line and, and it's going to increase um, sales and revenue and all that stuff. And here's why. If you don't walk them through this entire journey and you just kind of show up as a designer and say, this is where we want to go. It's awesome. Or it it's it's really scary do it, then you've, no one's, no one's with you. No one's going to be with you. You really have to walk them through that entire journey and explain to them the whys of where your, your analysis is coming from. And if they do, and they believe in it, and they actually have invested input, vested input, they help Mm -hmm. shape the trends. They help shape what that future is going to be. Then you can get them there. But if there's anything that's missing, it's like, oh, I don't really know if quantum computing is going to be a big disruptor in the next 10 years because I don't really understand what it does now. And it's so it's so immature at this point. I don't really want to invest in it. But if you put all this data together and say, oh, there's a massive experimentation, you know, IBM's building one, Google's building one. Everyone feels really um, invested in this, like major tech companies. Here's the data. Here's how many other companies, startups are investing in this. And they walk with you through it. They're like, oh God, quantum is something we really need to invest in, in the next 10 years. We need, to be, mm-hmm. we need to pioneer this before any other company gets here because it's a massive opportunity for our, our, our offering. Mm-hmm. Then you can get them invested in it. You just have to provide enough data, really. That's very interesting because that comes back to when we started, you're talking about hierarchies in, within businesses and hierarchies within, within meetings and all of that and the 30 men that you were describing. Um, it seems to me that's a very good um, framework to actually help people uh, drive innovation into a company. And um, when you did it, or you probably probably helped a lot of businesses um, transitioning from, um, I'm not, I, I don't want, to, I want to think just about the now. I don't want to think about the future. Transitioning into, I want to think about the future because that's where we're going. So was that the same framework they used to to help these businesses uh, think more about 
speculatively and think more about the future? Or is it something else that you use in order to help them or guide them to, to get, to get that to that place? Well, every, every client is a little bit different, right? Mm -hmm. Anyone you work with is a little bit different, what they care about, how, how deep you want to go with the trends, how, how deep you want to do, um, do these exercises with them. So I, I don't think there's one particular exercise, but I will mm -hmm. say that the futures wheel or the implications wheel is something that I do quite a bit. And mm -hmm. whether it is your, whether you're doing it to come up with a speculative design or just to come up with threats and opportunities, it's a very powerful exercise and it doesn't take that long yeah. really. And if you get a lot of, you know, experts in the room who really understand the industry mm -hmm. and can really tell you this is a, an actual potential implication and here's, Here's why, here's, here's why I believe so. It's just even, even stronger. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's sort of like, I don't know if you're familiar with the business model canvas, which is something I'd use a lot yeah. also. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it, it's kind of like that. It's just, it's just useful to unpack a problem, right? Unpack a business model mm -hmm. and see all of its components together. And then now that you're looking at everything, you can make some more prioritized, targeted decisions around what you want to do. Mm -hmm. So it, it's different. Again, every, everyone I work with is a little bit different on which tools to employ. And um, yeah, it's it's great that you mentioned uh, the future wheels because um, for anyone that doesn't know, Phil was kind enough to actually do one of these exercises with me, uh, so that we can understand how he approaches um, this speculative design and this futures futures planning uh, design as well. So. I'd like to do that with you now, Phil, and I'm going to share my screen and you guys can watch that on, on YouTube or just get, or just follow me on, on by listening to what I'm saying, because that's kind of a very descriptive, uh, descriptive. So I'm going to share my screen now and I'm going to open this board that we prepared uh, in order to get uh, to this. So you said that this, this futures will, you call something else as well, which is what? Implications wheel. Implications wheel. And it usually starts with a trend, right? Walk yeah, me through you, you, how you do this exercise with people. Yeah, so, it, it, you know, it's just it's just a series of circles, really. And all of them sort of um, radiating out from a central topic. And it can be a trend. It can be an event. It can be, you know, something we also call a signal. It can be the existence of something in the world. It can be, it can be my trip to the grocery store. It, so that's an event. Um, the existence of quantum computing, or the existence of autonomous cars, or drones, or or you know, um, was it unmanned aerial vehicles? <laughs> that can be whatever okay. whatever it is. You can be as very specific or as broad as you want. The next mm -hmm. the next group of circles that radiate from that central circle is um, what we call the direct implication or the first order consequence. What's the first impact that you can think of because of this trend event signal? product. What's the first thing you can think of would be a direct impact off of that? And there's no wrong answers. Mm -hmm. And then from that concentric ring, you radiate one, another another circle out. And mm -hmm. that next one is the second order, second order consequence or second order implication or the indirect impact of, of whatever it might be. And you can keep going out further and further and further as, as far as you want to go. That's yeah. a basic, that's the, that's a basic futures wheel. There are other modifications you can make on this wheel to kind of organize your thoughts. So if you, if you decide to divide this wheel into several sections, like five or six mm -hmm. pies, like pie slices, 
Each pie okay. slice can be a particular category. So it could be, what's the technological implication? I like to use something mm -hmm. in the foresight world called STEEP, S-T-E-E-P, which stands for social, technological, environmental, economic, and political perspectives. So if you use STEEP mm -hmm. in this wheel, you could have like, what's the political implication of, of this thing? What's the environmental implication of this thing? So you can get very mm -hmm. specific on on what aspect you're looking at about this about this thing. And you can come up with whatever you want. You can put values, you can put, you know, um, revenue, income, whatever it might be. And you can use this okay. personally, you know, like, like, if, like again, me going to the grocery store, I can map out implications <laughs> of me going to the grocery store today and how scary that might be. But um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty simple. Awesome. So I would like to, to use as a trend maybe or a signal like um, self-driving cars because although they are here now, uh, I think we can still we still have a room to kind of try to guess and speculate around futures when all the cars are self-driven. So maybe that's the trend that we we can start with and um, and then sure. follow through your exercise and understand how how we, how we do it. Yeah. So is that yeah. we just put like self-driving cars here in the middle? Yeah, that's true. Okay, I'm gonna write that now. Self-driving cars. And, and the line, the lines that, that you've drawn on here, um, mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean that they have to connect, but you can use other okay. lines to connect. So you could have like one direct implication and then connect it to some other like third order implication somewhere else. But the lines just kind of help you show. Um, connections. They don't necessarily have to be like mm -hmm. one after the other. They can just be, you know, the indirect consequence of this. Mm -hmm. So what question do you ask when we just define the trend to get the direct, the direct impl implications? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, there's lots of different ways to look at it. I mean, the best way is to kind of put yourself in, into that, that position mm -hmm. and think about, okay, what's, what's the, what's the first immediate thing that, that could happen because of the existence of self-driving cars. Now, you probably want to get very specific if you want to, like, mm -hmm. you know, um, get specific information. But less the first traffic. thing I can think of is, like, less traffic, right? Well, is, is so that true? I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, if there are enough self-driving cars and in a coordinated system, yes, they, they mm -hmm. believe that, and there's lots of experiment, experimentation, the traffic will be easier to deal with. <laughs> we don't necessarily we know so. if it's going to be less traffic in certain areas. LA might still experience a lot of it, but the, I mean, the main thing I can think of is like, oh, I don't have to use my hands anymore. I don't have to drive. Okay. So you write like, uh, I don't have to drive, something like that? Yeah. I don't actually have to manually drive anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the, indir the indirect implication of that is like, if I don't have to drive, um, well, could I get into an accident if the car fails or something like that? Or will I forget how to drive because the car, uh, you know, just like today with all of our, our, our digital stuff, my handwriting mm -hmm. has become terrible because I'm, 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 not, I'm not handwriting as much. My cursive is just really sucky. <laughs> okay. But that's it. My, my handwriting being terrible is the indirect implication of me using digital mm -hmm. products for so long and, and typing on the keyboard. Yeah. And so... Less accidents so, could be so, one also. Less accidents, definitely. So these are all the direct, the immediate things that you can think of, right? Because mm -hmm. like car drives itself, lots of other things that, that I can be doing without it, without driving or 
mm-hmm. lots of opportunities, right? Less accidents, less traffic. Now, more time to the, read <laughs> in the car. Right, more time to read. Right. Um, but okay, so let's talk about the accidents part. Yeah, sure, there's less accidents, but um, as as you might know, a lot of the cadavers that are used in in you know universities for studying in, in the mm-hmm. medical medical field come from accidents also from drunk wow. driving uh, casualties. I didn't know that. So there could be uh, a decrease in available cadavers for, for study in school. Mm-hmm. How big, how, uh, how, how um, important of a statistic that is depends on who's really looking at it. If like you're a, mm-hmm. if you are a company that specifically looks for drunk driving casualties to produce, to provide cadavers to medical universities, then you're probably going to, mm-hmm. you could have a problem. And you might want to think about like, well, okay, well, where else are we going to get, um, you know, bodies to study? There was actually yeah. an article on this that they're going to start using pigs. pigs, uh, in, And they actually do use pigs in, in, in place of. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that that's one kind of weird um, side event, side implication of that. So if there's it's less also traffic. Like less, less traffic, yeah. Or even like even in the less accidents, there's probably another one, which is like less um, repairing parts for cars that are like yeah. conditioned or something like that. Right. Or insurance insurance policies might change because there's less accidents. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's kind of like having, I think with home, homeowner's insurance, if you have a, an alarm, your insurance policy will be cheaper because you sort of protected your home. Well, if you have an autonomous mm-hmm. car, a really good autonomous car that has a very low accident record, then maybe your insurance policies would go down. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is great. Uh, I do a, a similar, like in my workshops, they, I've never done a, a speculative design workshop, but a design thinking workshop, sometimes you ask this pre-mortem question, which is, if you fail now, um, what might trigger that? What tri- Or what triggered that failure? Mm-hmm. And this is kind of speculative anyway. Yes, <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. Oh, this is interesting. So for example, I'm interested about like when you have less traffic, what might be the... Uh, indirect, indirect consequences of that. If you have less traffic. <laughs> well, I mean, more so it, space. It, yeah, I mean, so if you are if you are someone who wants to kind of um, take advantage of that, if if it's very predictable, if traffic patterns are way more predictable, well, they are, they kind of are now. We we've got rush hour and stuff, but mm-hmm. if they're even more if they're even more predictable than that, you could take advantage of that space. If like, okay, we know that because in this, in this particular region, the city, 80% of the people now have autonomous cars, the traffic, the traffic has become optimized. We may want to modify the, the traffic signal system to work better mm-hmm. with the thing, invest in more beacon technology to kind of help that improve that even more. You can take that opportunity. We've seen, we've seen an event, a direct implication because of this event. Let's optimize that and take advantage of it. Um, or protect, it could be like uh, a restaurant or something that wants to take advantage of like, well, we know there's, we know because we can predict traffic to a very, very high degree, maybe we can take advantage of it. Like we know that there's going to be a traffic pattern here. Maybe we could put billboards up or something in this, in this area mm-hmm. and, you know, send coupons to vehicles, autonomous vehicles at this time, because we know exactly how many people are going to be coming through here at the time. And we can predict certain aspects of it and we can take advantage of that as an opportunity as well. Mm. Um, 
are there other threats to the system? So if, if, if there is less traffic in a particular area because the autonomous cars have chosen a different route, now you've lost business in a particular area or you've lost that, that something else. There's some sort of loss. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's always, there's always a, a positive and a negative and you can look at it. You, one person's threat could be another person's opportunity. And exactly. the next step on that would be, how do I create, if it's an opportunity, how do I use speculative thinking to create an opportunity space for us to create a vision? So we know self-driving cars coming. We know statistically that there's going to be less traffic, less accidents. There's an opportunity to build a new product here. And here's why, and here's what it could look like. We should do this, mm-hmm. right? And that's where you'd start to convince people through that vehicle, no pun intended, um, <laughs> to 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 create a roadmap towards that product. This is great, Phil. Um, I'm just curious about one more thing, which is what is the first thing that you do after you get, uh, I imagine that this becomes like very large when you have a big loop group. Um mm-hmm. What is the first thing that you do in order to turn one of these things um, in in something that is palpable, something that is tangible, and something that is uh, kind of real for anyone that is is involved? How do you how do you select something? Or yeah, exactly. How do you select? And for example, do you create a specific object or asset or whatever just to validate that idea? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of um, prioritization, really, depending on who you're working with. Hopefully you have a lot of experts in the room or, or stakeholders. Yeah. And through this through this exercise, you would, you would identify the different points that you care about and hopefully get um, some sort of voting, everyone be able mm-hmm. to at least be aligned on which is the opportunity or threat that we want to tackle at, at this point. And again, you can do this. Wow. This doesn't have to be like 10 years in the future. This can be literally tomorrow. Or mm-hmm. you can you can also divide it into like, well, this could happen tomorrow, that can happen three years, and that can happen five years, that can happen ten years. You can divide it in terms of time, implications that happen that arrive during different periods of time. Mm-hmm. And decide, well, do we really care about this this thing now or do we care about it later? And yeah. again, you can you can throw all kinds of quantitative data on it. So it's like you you just identified a um, a threat uh, that seems pretty pretty viable. How do we know this is actually mm-hmm. a real threat? Well, let's kind of, let's look at, let's look at um, other industries or let's look at actually the market investment in this threat. Is anyone else mm-hmm. thinking about this? Has, does everyone else have the same idea? Is this an actual viable threat that everyone else is thinking about? So should, we should be thinking about it. Mm-hmm. So you can start to just kind of pile on the amount of evidence that will show you this is something that you really want to care about. Now there are these mm-hmm. black swans like another pandemic right? Another uncontrollable pandemic. And you can decide, well, oh gosh, we're in a pandemic right now. Shouldn't we, shouldn't we solve for this? Yeah. You can decide if, Mm -hmm. if you really care about that, but it's so unknown. And you can think about like, well, let's just at least put on paper a contingency plan if that happens. And that could be the the most effort you put into it. Or you could actually start to really invest in like an infrastructure to protect yourself and your business from this, this potential threat. Because, you know, you've, you've read enough science, everyone's talking about it. It's going to happen. You know, people can really start to think about the Delta variant as a as a pretty pretty uh, important potential threat. But mm-hmm. how much you invest in it is going to be up to your business, your stakeholders, your client, whoever it might be, and and how much evidence there is. If that makes sense. Great. 
Yeah, that's that's amazing. I have just one last question, and I'm curious because you think about a lot about futures, and you help a lot of people creating their own futures. I'm curious what is spiking your curiosity at the moment. Um, I I also get asked that question a lot, and I I don't always have <laughs> I don't always always have the most like futuristic answers to that because I think there's a lot of things that are happening where yeah I, I'm keeping an eye on the world and 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 technology and you know flying cars and quantum computing and AI and all that stuff and a lot of it's kind of starting to get boring to me, but I think what mm -hmm. I, what I'm what's more fascinating is coming out of the pandemic is the changing in the in the kind of the social structures and our our um our systems with how we, how we work, right? the remote working and all mm -hmm. that stuff. And, and some of that stuff's very obvious on the surface, but when you start to look ahead on what that means for how we're changing about what's important to us, not just like, oh, we spend more time in family, so we're more, more family oriented like that. But that, the, the indirect implication of what's happening now is going to really shape future, the future products and services and the way businesses work and all, all that stuff. That is, it's, it's fascinating to watch all of that unfold. And mm -hmm. um, even with all the social movements like Black Lives Matter, anti-vax and all that stuff, it's really polarizing society and, and all over the world. Lots, there's lots of frustration and, and there's, there's a lot of hope as well. And, and even with climate change, which, you know, if, you know I, I sort of grew up also in the 80s where global warming was an issue and there's a lot of protests about that stuff. So I'm seeing a lot of the similar patterns also, but I'm also trying to, to understand like what are we going to do this time around now that we have more technology we have more people talking about it there's more voices the internet and all that stuff like i'm more i'm more fascinated by the the social systems that are that are mm -hmm. transforming at this moment and how that's going to shape technology because a lot of when people think about the future they're always thinking about like robots and flying cars and all kinds of mm -hmm. like sci-fi stuff very cool i love i love that stuff mm -hmm. as well but None of that stuff works uh, without the human aspect and the behaviors that that shape it, and and that's what's going to change what those become, and mm -hmm. that's what's really interesting to watch unfold today. And and you have Great. to constantly have a pulse check on that to really know what the mm -hmm. future is going to look like. Is there anything that you're working on currently that you want to share? Um, I do have a, a a talk that I've been working on. So an, an, the next step is. We talk a lot about we talk a lot about the future and ethics, but we and we we mention policy and regulation, but we don't really talk about how designers can shape policies. And so mm -hmm. I've recently did a talk at um, IXDA at Interaction. Uh, it's it a very short talk. I'm going to do I'm doing extended talk at UX New Zealand in November, but talking about policy making, the the design mm -hmm. of policy. This isn't necessarily a futures oriented topic, but yeah. How do we as designers use our tools to help shape what is typically done by lawyers, product management, whoever it might be, creating the policies and, and those like invisible infrastructures that allow our products to work and allow it to be um, disseminated or provide access to people who really need it? How do we um, involve ourselves in that process to, to design that policy? Like we're not used to designing mm -hmm. words, but those gates are so important for every single thing that we put out in the world and can limit access to people who really need it or provide it to the people who really need it. And it can be a matter of how that thing is designed. And I think that there's a huge opportunity for us to be involved in that. And I'm, I'm such not, not an expert on it, but I've done a lot of interviews mm -hmm. with people from lawyers on Capitol Hill 
um, to product managers and designers on what policy actually looks like and in trying to shape um, a perspective on that. And I, and I need some help from the community. So yeah. if anyone's interested in talking about designing policies, hit me up. Awesome. And that's interesting because uh, that just reminds me like when smart contracts actually become a thing of like everyone talks about, maybe yeah. that's also designing the policy for smart contracts and making them work and yeah. in a way that help people. That's incredible. Yeah. Phil, yeah. thank you very much for coming to the show. Uh, it was an incredible conversation and I really liked our talk and knowing more about you and your work. Thank you very Thanks, much. Fabio. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.